everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, author of The Cryptopians. I started covering crypto seven years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the March 10th, 2023 episode of Unchained. Branching out from just being a podcast, Unchained has launched a new website, complete with more breaking crypto news, educational articles for those just getting started, how-to guides, and videos. Check it out at unchainedcrypto.com to find answers to all your crypto questions. Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. With the Crypto.com app, you can buy, earn, and spend crypto in one place. Download and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Ever wanted to use DeFi without being tracked? Railgun is a leading DeFi privacy solution on Ethereum, BSC, Arbitrum, and Polygon. Shield your funds and use them privately in your favorite DeFi apps, while Railgun's cutting-edge zero-knowledge system encrypts your data from public view. Yes, that includes DEX trading. Visit railgun.org or use the Railway app at railway.xyz. Today's guest is Elliot Stein, Senior Litigation Analyst for the Financial Sector at Bloomberg Intelligence. Welcome, Elliot. Hey, Laura. How you doing? Good. Glad to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, uh, I listen to your podcast fairly frequently, so it's uh, nice to be on the other side. Great. On Tuesday, a panel of judges in the District of Columbia Court of Appeals in Washington heard oral arguments in Grayscale's lawsuit against the SEC over its rejection of Grayscale's Bitcoin ETF application. Give us the background of how this day in court came to be. Sure. So, you know, there's a lot of really interesting legal cases uh, in crypto these days. Um, And one of them involves uh, this case, um, Grayscale's petition challenging the SEC's uh, rejection of its uh, spot Bitcoin ETF. You know, this goes back a few years. I think the crypto community has been clamoring for some sort of Bitcoin ETF for a few years now. The SEC rejected those applications for a long time. And then finally, in uh, late 2021, and then again in 2022, they started approving uh, applications for uh, um, Bitcoin futures ETFs. But to date, they have not approved uh, an application for a spot Bitcoin ETF. And that discrepancy um, was the impetus for this lawsuit, uh, or this challenge by Grayscale. And so on Tuesday during the hearing, what were some of the arguments that you heard from both sides? Sure. So, you know, Grayscale's main argument is that um, there's an inconsistency in um, the standard that the SEC is applying because they approved uh, uh, Bitcoin futures ETF, but they have rejected spot Bitcoin ETF. And the argument is that, you know, because the underlying assets essentially are the same and derived from Bitcoin prices, they should uh, be treating these two products the same, but they're not. And as a result, um, they're treating similar products differently. And that, to use the, the legal phrase, um, is arbitrary and capricious. 
and violates federal law. And then what about the SEC's argument? What were they saying? Sure. Well, the SEC's argument is, you know, that they, they actually have been applying the same standard, but the products are different, that the, that the futures, Bitcoin futures market is regulated by the CFTC and that, so that they have some comfort that, um, they're, they're, that they can um, detect fraud and manipulation um, in the underlying market and be satisfied that the, that, uh, that the um, ETF won't be affected. Um, but in contrast, the spot Bitcoin market is not regulated. And so they don't have that same level of surveillance agreements with um, exchanges to make sure that there's no fraud or manipulation in the underlying market. So one other thing that I wanted to raise here was um, just an interesting tidbit about Grayscale's counsel. Um, his name is Don Verrilli. Who is he? What's his background? Oh, sure. Don, Don Verrilli is a you know, highly esteemed lawyer. Uh, he was the solicitor general in the Obama administration and was probably most famous for arguing the, uh, the Obamacare case in the Supreme Court, which wound up going, uh, you know, in the, the Obama administration's favor. You know, he, he's a terrific lawyer. He's got a very understated manner, I would say, in court, but very respected, very credible. And I thought he did a, a really fine job yesterday, um, on Tuesday when the case was argued. So when that happened, what kind of questions were you hearing from the judges? So the, the judges were really um, digging into um, one particular issue. And this, this goes to um, previous orders where the SEC approved these Bitcoin futures ETFs. And in those cases, they said that if there was fraud or manipulation in the underlying spot market, it would show up in the futures market. And um, as a result, uh, you know, the SEC was able to approve those orders. Um, and they were wondering why that isn't the case now, because in the Grayscale's application and in the SEC's rejection order, the SEC said, actually, um, if there is fraud or manipulation in the spot Bitcoin market, it's not going to show up in the futures market. And just because you have a surveillance agreement with the CME where Bitcoin futures are traded, you're not necessarily going to see that there's fraud or manipulation in the spot market. And it's that discrepancy that the judges really focused on. And they, you know, they, they wanted the SEC to give them a satisfactory answer. The SEC tried. I'm not sure they convinced the judges, though. What was the SEC's argument? Well, the SEC's argument is that even though there's this 99.9% correlation between the prices in the spot market and in the futures market, uh, they're not convinced that fraud in the spot market would show up the same way in the futures market. They never really clarified what that meant, but they, you know, they said that Grayscale needed to provide more empirical evidence of how fraud in the spot market might manifest in the futures market. Um, and, and the judges pushed back on that quite a bit and said, you know, why, why do they have to show that? Why is it not enough that the prices are correlated so extensively? And in addition to that, what type of, you know, empirical evidence do they need to show? Um, and the SEC, um, you know, didn't really give a satisfactory answer for that, in my opinion. And so going into the hearing before you heard the arguments, what were your thoughts about how you thought the case would go? Yeah, so going in, you know, I, I, I thought it was a close case. I gave the SEC a slight edge. I thought Grayscale had a 40% chance of winning prior to the argument. You know, and that, in, in my mind, that reflected that it was a close case. I gave the edge to the SEC. 
I thought courts generally defer to agencies on issues like this because the agencies are the experts and courts are you know, not quite as versed in, in securities laws and, and, um, and things like that. But coming out of the argument, um, you know, I think uh, Grayscale is favored now, and I give them a 70% chance to win a ruling from the court that vacates the SEC's order rejecting their application. And was that primarily based on that one inconsistency that the judges were really honing in on? Is that why you changed your mind? Yeah, that's that's a lot of it. I mean, it was sort of the tenor of the questions and the extent to which I, I thought, or in this case, didn't think the SEC convinced the judges that there was a satisfactory explanation for that inconsistency. Yeah, and it definitely looks like the markets agreed with you because um, afterward, the GBTC price rose. And for uh, quite a long time now, it's been trading at below um, the NAV, uh, which reflected kind of the fact that people, um, you know, felt like it wasn't actually as um, valuable an instrument to have as the underlying. So that um, now reflects more confidence that eventually holders of GPTC could be made whole. And if they're buying at a discount now, then that means that they'll sort of get free money if this becomes an ETF. So in a moment, we're going to talk about uh, what the different outcomes could be. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Ever wanted to use DeFi without being tracked? Railgun is the leading DeFi privacy solution on Ethereum. It's available on BSC, Arbitrum, and Polygon 2. Shield your funds and use them privately in your favorite DeFi apps, while Railgun's cutting-edge, zero-knowledge system encrypts your data from public view, all without leaving your preferred chain. Yes, that includes DEX trading. Coming soon are integrations with leading yield, lending, and perp trading platforms on multiple chains. DeFi and privacy, together at last. Visit railgun.org or use the Railway app at railway.xyz to find out more. Back to my conversation with Elliot. So if the court rules in Grayscale's favor, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that suddenly GPTC would become a Bitcoin ETF. So why don't you just outline like all the different possibilities of what could happen? Yeah, and they actually talked about this at at the argument um, on March 7th. It's not like the court is just going to issue a ruling saying, bam, uh, you know, bought Bitcoin ETF is approved, ready to go, they'll, they'll most likely send it back to the SEC. Um, they'll issue an order sending it back to the SEC for further review. And language of, in that ruling is going to be really critical because they can go a few ways. They can send it back to the SEC and say, you know, you didn't give us a satisfactory reason for treating these two products differently. Go back to the drawing board, give us a better answer. Um, and you know, review the application again with that in mind. Right? That that's one possibility. Another possibility is that they actually constrain the SEC a lot more in sending it back and say, look, you know, based on you know the arguments made, the facts that we've seen, you know, we we don't see any way for the SEC to um, reject this application again. And so we're sending it back to you, but essentially with the direction to approve uh, the application the next go around. But obviously, there's still a chance that they rule for the SEC, right? I mean, uh, you know, I think Grayscale is 70% likely to win this round, but that obviously leaves an opening for the court to give to, to rule for the SEC. Right. But uh, but so let's explore this, like if Grayscale were to win a little bit further. Um, so potentially it could be 
either that um, the the Bitcoin ETF is denied on a, another uh, basis. It, could anything happen to the Bitcoin futures ETFs as a result of this? You know, whatever happens. Yeah, that that also came up in the argument, and you know, a couple of judges asked about that. You know, if they do, if they do, um, if they do vacate the order, the SEC's order, and they say the SEC got it wrong. Theoretically, there is the possibility that the SEC says, okay, well, you know, if if spot Bitcoin ETFs are not going to be able to, um, you know, if we can't reject those, then in order to be consistent, um, I mean, it, 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 in order to be consistent, we'll also have to reject futures, uh, Bitcoin futures ETFs, which we've already approved. I I find it hard to believe that the SEC is going to go back on its previous approvals of Bitcoin futures ETFs. I think that chip has already sailed. But it is a theoretical possibility. It came up in argument. Both sides, you know, the SEC was unwilling to say exactly what it was going to do. But the judges asked about it. Um, and Don really mentioned it as, as a possibility as well. And so earlier when I said that, you know, the price of GBTC rose because potentially people are like, oh, like if I own this and I'm sort of getting these shares cheaper. But it, it looked like you reacted and maybe didn't agree with me. So did, yeah, did you want to respond to that? No, no, I, I um, don't read too much into into my facial expressions. <laughs> um, but you know, um, but but we did see, you know, that um, the discount did, you know, drop. Right, there was the discount went from like forty percent some or something like that when the argument started to you know low thirties by the time the argument ended. So you know, I think that does reflect the market thinking that you know Grayscale had a good day in court. Um, you know, there's, you know, probably five to six billion dollars at stake here in terms of um, value for GPTC investors, uh, you know, reflecting the, that that discount between the 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 value of the trust, which is, um, you know, about eight and a half billion dollars as of March 7th versus the value of the underlying um, Bitcoin, which was roughly 14 billion dollars in the trust. So um, what? So if this ends up resulting in GBTC being turned into a spot Bitcoin ETF, what do you think that could mean for other, you know, firms that have been applying to create their own spot Bitcoin ETFs? Like, meaning, would the ruling be limited just to this one situation, or would there be kind of a a wider implication? No, I I, I think there's I think there's definitely a wider implication um, because if eventually. Uh, Grayscale's application gets approved, and then it opens up the you know the floodgates for other firms to offer similar products. And so earlier, um, you know, you started to go into if the court were to rule against Grayscale for the SEC, and obviously we talked about why. You know, right now your confidence is more in the other direction. But if the court does rule for the SEC, what do you think the reason will be? That that's a great question. You know, I, I think the the reason would. Be that um, that these are different products, um, and that you know the SEC, if that happens, convinced the court that just because the price is correlated doesn't necessarily mean that the way fraud or manipulation manifests in the spot market is the same as it is in the futures market, and that as a result, um, the SEC was um, you know in the right in treating the two products. Differently, another argument that the SEC made is that in Bitcoin futures ETF, one of which was approved 
last year in the, in, in the Tucrium order, that there was a one-to-one relationship between the underlying assets, which were Bitcoin futures, and the products on the CME that are be you know that are subject to a surveillance agreement, right? And we don't have that here in the spot Bitcoin ETF because the underlying asset is you know spot Bitcoin, and the surveillance agreement again is with the CME and Bitcoin futures. And so there is a there is a slight discrepancy there. And you know the the SEC pointed to that difference many times, but again, I don't think uh, the judges were convinced. I think that's one thing that the judges will actually ask the SEC to go back to the drawing board and explain better. Why, why that matters, why that one-to-one relationship matters for purposes of approving the, the, um, or rejecting the spot Bitcoin ETF. You know, the backdrop to this lawsuit is that there's been a kind of a turf war between the SEC and the CFTC over crypto now for a few years. And I wondered if you thought the ruling in this case would have any impact on, on that fight sort of between the agencies. Yeah, no, we, we definitely see that. I mean, you know, I, th- I think sometimes people describe it as a turf war. I think it might be overstated because I think the agencies actually do work together most of the time. Chairman Gensler certainly has tried to stake out a lot of territory in terms of overseeing the crypto market. I don't think this case actually has will have much effect on, you know, whether the SEC versus the CFTC has jurisdiction. You know, the SEC has jurisdiction over, um, ex- you know, ETFs and exchange-traded products, right? There are other cases where I think it will really matter for whether the SEC or the CFTC has jurisdiction. Things like the SEC versus Ripple case, you know, other cases where the SEC is saying that digital assets that are being listed on platforms are unregistered securities, right? And if the SEC loses those and they're not treated as securities, then the CFTC would have jurisdiction over them. So when do you expect a ruling in this particular case? So I, I you know, I, Based on other cases coming out of the D.C. circuit, uh, you know, I think a ruling's likely within three to six months, probably closer, you know, to the six month time frame. Um, so, you know, I'd expect something at the earliest late 2Q, um, but probably more likely in, you know, mid to late 3Q. And so just a moment ago, you said that there are other cases that you feel are also very impactful in crypto. What are some of those that you're keeping an eye on? Yeah, there's there's a there's a lot. Yeah, I mean the the SEC Ripple case is obviously one that's on a lot of people's minds, and you know we uh, we're waiting for a critical ruling on summary judgment motions in that case, which which will essentially determine whether the judge rules on her own as to whether XRP is a security or not or not, or whether she sends it to trial. But there's you know there's there's the um, SEC versus Wahi case, which is the um, case involving a Coinbase employee accused of insider trading. Um, again, the SEC has alleged that, you know, and almost 10 digital, I think there's like nine digital assets at stake in that, at issue in that case. And the SEC has said they're securities. That'll be an interesting case to follow. <clears throat> you know, we, we the, um, the case against Terra, Terraform involving stablecoins is going to be interesting for purposes of how the SEC approaches stable coins in terms of alleging whether they are securities or not. We have the NFT case, uh, the Top Tots case that came out not too long ago, which has to do with whether NFTs are securities. You know, the judge there said that based on the allegations, the case could proceed, um, but we still have to wait for, you know, a, a merits decision later in that case. 
there, there's a few others, but you know, the, the point is there, there's, there's a lot of really interesting cases, and a lot of them are cases of first impression because this is obviously a, a novel area. And of those cases, which ones right now do you think are going to go in a direction either that the crypto community wants or like really doesn't want? Well, I, I think the, the Ripple case is, I think, you know, one of the more interesting ones um, because you're dealing with a digital asset that, you know, has, you know, has utility, right? Um, which weighs in favor of, of those assets being commodities. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, the SEC has alleged that they were marketed as investments in many ways that purchasers who who, who bought the tokens from um, Ripple, you know, treated them as investments and are hoping that the, the, you know, the price of the assets rise, right? So it's a really interesting case for, for the whole crypto sector. Um, and, you know, I think we may get a, a ruling on the summary judgment motions, you know, in 1H this year. All right. Well, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for coming on Unchained. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Laura. Don't forget, next up is the weekly news recap. Stick around for This Week in Crypto after this short break. Join over 50 million people using Crypto.com, one of the easiest places to buy, earn, and spend over 250 cryptocurrencies. Spend your crypto anywhere using the Crypto.com Visa card. Get up to 5% cash back instantly. Plus, 100% rebates for your Netflix and Spotify subscriptions and zero annual fees. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. Silvergate Bank shuts down. Silvergate Capital Corporation, the holding company for Silvergate Bank, one of the crypto industry's most important banking partners, announced that it intends to wind down operations and voluntarily liquidate the bank. The decision was made a week after it failed to file its annual 10K report with the Securities and Exchange Commission and said it was being investigated by the U.S. Department of Justice. The announcement tanked the stock by more than 60%. The bank's wind-down and liquidation plan includes fully repaying all deposits. Silvergate Capital has yet to decide how best to resolve claims and preserve the residual value of its assets, which include proprietary technology and tax assets. The news comes despite Bloomberg reporting earlier in the week that Silvergate was working with regulators to prevent a complete shutdown of its operations, with examiners from the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation sent to Silvergate's headquarters last week to review the bank's books and records in a move authorized by the Federal Reserve. Last week, Silvergate Bank shut down the Silvergate Exchange Network, or SEN, its instant settlement network developed for its many crypto industry customers. However, all other deposit-related services will remain operational as the company works through the wind-down process. The bank's choice to close down operations and liquidate is expected to have significant implications for the crypto industry as a whole, and will likely be closely watched by regulators and other financial institutions in the space. In fact, on Monday, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre had said it was, quote, aware of the situation with a troubled crypto bank and would continue to monitor reports. In a video for Unchained, Caitlin Long, founder and CEO of Custodio Bank, says that this failure isn't a reflection on crypto. This is actually a canary in the coal mine for bank regulators, and I do hope they see it as that. It, that uh, this has nothing to do with crypto. It has to do with how fast the payments can settle, which means bank runs are going to happen a lot faster. New York AG claims Ether is a security. 
New York Attorney General Letitia James sued Seychelles-based crypto exchange KuCoin for violating securities laws. James claims KuCoin has been offering tokens, including Ether, without registering with her office. This marks the first time a regulator has claimed in court that Ether is a security. James asserts that Ether's value is dependent on the efforts of others, including Vitalik Buterin, and that it meets the definition of a security under the Martin Act, New York's anti-fraud law. KuCoin is also being accused of selling unregistered securities via its product, KuCoin Earn, similar to the recent case with Kraken, which settled with the SEC for not properly registering its staking services. Binance US gets approval to buy Voyager's assets. Bankrupt crypto lender Voyager Digital received approval from a U.S. bankruptcy judge to sell its assets and transfer its customers to Binance U.S. in a deal valued at $1.3 billion. Binance U.S. will pay $20 million in cash to Voyager and take on crypto assets deposited by Voyager's customers, with the customer's crypto assets accounting for the bulk of the deal's valuation. The deal's approval comes despite objections from the SEC and other state regulators. The SEC initially cited concerns over how Binance U.S. could afford a transaction of such magnitude. However, the regulator was later overruled by the bankruptcy judge, who found the objection to be, quote, vague and lacking concrete evidence. The deal's approval marks a significant win for Binance U.S. and Voyager creditors, who could potentially recover 73% of the value of their deposits at the time of Voyager's bankruptcy filing. The ruling could set in motion the process of transferring customer accounts from Voyager to Binance, And when it is closed, Voyager customers will be able to make withdrawals for the first time since last summer. In related news, a judge approved the company's agreement to set aside $445 million after an FTX entity sued it for loan repayments. The parties agreed to participate in non-binding mediation and establish a framework for the litigation of remaining disputes. White House proposes new crypto tax treatment. In its fiscal year 2024 budget proposal, the Biden administration included a provision that would subject digital assets to wash sale rules, which means that tax deductions on selling assets at a loss and quickly repurchasing the same or a similar crypto investment would be eliminated, similar to the treatment of stocks and bonds. The administration estimates that this change could result in roughly $31.6 billion in revenue over 10 years. 3AC founders launch new exchange. The founders of collapsed crypto hedge fund Three Arrows Capital, or 3AC, Kyle Davies and Su Zhu, raised $25 million for a new venture called OPNX. The platform will specialize in bankruptcy claims trading, allowing creditors to sell their claims quickly without waiting for a long bankruptcy process. The platform lists bankrupt crypto firms such as FTX, Genesis, Celsius, BlockFi, Mt. Gox, and yes, 3AC itself, among the claims it will service. The firm estimates a market size of $20 billion and will cater to investors too small to qualify for OTC deals. Thankfully, Zhu and Davies did not call it GTX because, quote, G comes after X, as was initially pitched. Separately, Rook, a liquidity profile on Ethereum backed by 3AC, experienced a surge in activity, with its token rising 23% on speculation of the fundraising. Alameda sues Grayscale. Alameda Research, the bankrupt crypto trading firm related to FTX, has taken legal action against Grayscale Investments, the creator of the largest Bitcoin fund. Alameda alleges that Grayscale's, quote, self-imposed redemption plan is obstructing shareholders from receiving $9 billion in value related to the Bitcoin and Ethereum trusts. 
The lawsuit was filed in the state of Delaware's Court of Chancery and seeks injunctive relief to allow FTX's investors to obtain over $250 million in net asset value. Alameda holds 22 million shares in the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust and 6 million shares in the Grayscale Ethereum Trust. Additionally, the suit claims that Grayscale's management of $1.3 billion charged over the last two years violates the trust's agreements, and the firm used fabricated excuses to prevent redemptions. Alameda sells stake in Sequoia. This week, Alameda has also agreed to sell its interest in Sequoia Capital to the Abu Dhabi Sovereign Wealth Fund for $45 million, according to court documents filed on March 9th. The deal is part of FTX's bankruptcy proceedings, in which the company is selling its investments in early-stage crypto and tech ventures to repay creditors. The potential buyer is owned by the Abu Dhabi government and already invests in Sequoia. Still, the deal is subject to approval by a Delaware bankruptcy court, but could be closed as soon as March 31st. Meanwhile, Sam Bankman-Fried's lawyers informed a federal judge that he may ask to delay his criminal trial scheduled for October 2023. They say he needs more time to review large amounts of evidence that prosecutors have collected, including cell phones, laptops, and Google accounts of former employees. Companies tied to Tether used false documents. According to the Wall Street Journal, firms backing Tether, the company behind the most widely traded stablecoin, USDT, allegedly used falsified documents and shell companies to circumvent the banking system. These entities apparently used, quote, shadowy intermediaries, to maintain their access to the global banking system. As per an email reviewed by the Wall Street Journal, Tether owner Stephen Moore detailed how one of Tether's major traders in China provided fake sales invoices and contracts for each deposit and withdrawal. Tether-associated companies also allegedly hid their identities behind other businesses and individuals. Moreover, Tether and its sister company Bitfinex reportedly unsuccessfully attempted to expand their bank access through the once-crypto-friendly Signature Bank. Tether called the report, quote, wholly inaccurate and misleading, and stated that they routinely and voluntarily assist law enforcement organizations in preventing money laundering, terrorism, and other crimes by bad actors. Binance wanted to hire Gary Gensler. According to text messages and documents reviewed by The Wall Street Journal, Binance tried to hire crypto public enemy number one as an advisor in 2018. Yes, we're talking about Gary Gensler, before he became the chair of the SEC. At the time, Gensler was teaching a course on blockchain and money at MIT's Sloan School of Management. After a meeting with Ella Zhang, Binance's former head of ventures, and Harry Zhou, co-founder of Binance-backed OTC trading desk Koi Trading, Gensler reportedly declined a role as an advisor to the crypto exchange. The documents indicate that Binance had a legitimate concern regarding potential repercussions from U.S. regulatory bodies. A presentation shared in 2018 called for the establishment of a separate U.S.-based entity to insulate Binance from U.S. enforcement, which eventually led to the creation of Binance U.S. A Binance spokesperson told the WSJ that the presentation was rejected and had never been implemented. In related news... Binance-branded stablecoin BUSD's market cap has been declining since the SEC issued a Wells notice to its issuer Paxos. Investors have redeemed over $8 billion from BUSD, which has resulted in its market cap falling below $8.5 billion. Is a Celsius buyout coming? Celsius Network has been granted exclusivity by bankruptcy court judge Martin Glenn to repair a plan for exiting bankruptcy until the end of March, despite the U.S. government and creditors asserting that liquidation is an option. 
Celsius currently has a potential deal with Novowolf that could lead to the crypto lender exiting bankruptcy protection by the end of June. Novowolf, a financial technology company, had originally entered into an agreement with Celsius to explore the possibility of an acquisition. However, Celsius is still open to, quote, better offers from potential buyers, according to the firm's attorney. The bankrupt company and its creditor committee have already met with another buyer on an alternative proposal to Novowolf's. If Celsius chooses a different bidder, it intends to offer Novowolf up to $20 million in breakup fees. In a separate move, Celsius allocated $25 million to address the high demand for withdrawals from its platform. The embattled crypto lender has also burned $500 million worth of wrapped Bitcoin in an effort to manage its exposure to volatile crypto assets. Time for fun bits. Paul Krugman gets rugged. Paul Krugman, the famous economist and longtime crypto skeptic, has fallen victim to the very thing he criticized. He recently took to Twitter to complain about being blacklisted by Venmo, a centralized payments app. Niraj Agrawal of Coin Center tweeted back at him, quote, Were you trying to buy drugs or assassination? And posted a screenshot of a tweet of Krugman's in which he said that it wasn't a big deal to use a third party for payments, quote, unless you're buying drugs, assassinations, etc. Samson Moe replied, Chatting by fax must be tedious a dig at Krugman's famous 1998 proclamation that, by 2005, the Internet's effect on the economy would be no greater than the fax machines. And, of course, Michael Saylor wrote, Bitcoin fixes this. Vitalik Buterin sells $700,000 in shitcoins. When the creator of Ethereum makes market moves, people pay attention. Jenny Hogan from Unchained has the update. So Vitalik Buterin recently sold about $700,000 worth of shit coins, which are these joke coins that are often a huge waste of money. Not to be confused with regular cryptocurrency, which are non-joke coins that are often a huge waste of money. But like a hot girl in a bar, Vitalik actually got these coins for free. It turns out that sometimes people will send free coins to a celebrity in the hopes that their followers will copy them and then buy the coin. It's not a bad strategy. I mean, people do copy Vitalik. That's why unicorn t-shirt sales have gone through the roof in recent years. And it can have positive repercussion. One time, Shiba Inu sent about half their total coins to Vitalik, and he donated them to a COVID relief fund. I have to imagine is the sole reason why the pandemic is wrapping up after a mere three years. Is it rude to sell something that somebody gave you for free? My mother would say yes, but in my defense, I think that a gift card for egg freezing was kind of a weird birthday present. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Elliot and the ongoing fight between Grayscale and the SEC, check out the show notes for this episode. If you've been enjoying Unchained, please share with family, friends, or others who have an interest in crypto. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Mark Murdoch, Matt Pilchard, Zach Seward, Juan Aranovich, Sam Shriram, Ginny Hogan, Ben Munster, Jeff Benston, Leandro Camino, Pamela Jimdar, Shashank, and CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.